Hey everyone, welcome to the Urban Tech Podcast. I'm John Tomey, the founder of Urban Tech and your guide to the intersection of cities and tech. This week, I spoke with Lime's head of global policy, Katie Stevens. Katie leads Lime's public policy team and helps the company operate and partner with governments across all levels, including local, state, and federal. I really enjoyed getting to speak with Katie because transportation is obviously an issue she takes personally. She's incredibly insightful, thoughtful, and passionate about these topics. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Katie, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're obviously super busy right now. It's been a crazy week. Lime is a company that I hear from urban tech leaders a lot. They're always following. Micromobility is a theme that I've covered a lot so far. Right now, what are you spending your days on? What's taking up a lot of your time in this crazy world of COVID? First of all, John, thank you for having me. I, I think at this point in the, the COVID reality that we're in, I would like to have thought that we would have been in recovery by now that we come February, March, when it hit and this industry was really questioning, will people ride, right? Are we getting COVID from rides? How are people contracting it? What does this mean for the long-term for mobility? It was shortly thereafter that we determined actually scooters and bikes were, they're one of the safest ways to get around. With open air, you actually picking it up from a surface is unlikely, but we sanitize scooters on every touch anyway. When you're in much more confined area, ride hailing or even your own personal car, those sort of isolated areas, that's obviously where you pick it up inside those types of environments. What we are now focused on is this continued pervasiveness of COVID. So an example would be early on where we continue to provide service with South Korea, even during COVID, because they had such a strong reaction. Cases were very minimal. We have fantastic service in South Korea. And so we maintained and it was very successful. Now, South Korea is struggling as well with cases across the world. Slowly came back to offer essential workers. We have a LIMAID program. We started to ramp back up into cities, offering, helping essential workers get to work. We gave them free rides. A number of cities deemed us essential transportation. If you would have asked me, Three years ago, when pedal bikes were showing up on city sidewalks and, and they were very unhappy in, in some cases, that someday they would consider e-scooters an essential part of their transportation network in a crisis, I would have said, you're crazy. But we are not surprised by it. We know people ride scooters. They ride them a lot and they love them. And they love their e-bikes. They serve different use cases. And so when cities like LA and Austin came to us and said, we actually think you're an essential part of our transportation network. We want you to continue to operate, but we'd love for you to stay here. And and we've continued in those cities. So now we're, we ramped up and now we're looking at cities are beginning to shut down again. And so we're continuing to grapple with, how, again, providing the essential services, really then focusing on not just what we're doing today, but how do we allow, how do we let cities recover? How do we support them, support small businesses and some of the things we're doing, helping public transit come back at the end of the day, because we have such a strong nexus between ridership and really serving that first mile, last mile between four commuters and certainly to and from public transit, even when people aren't commuting. And so what that means as well is what I'm focused on. You asked what I'm focused on COVID, but two, as we're looking towards a post-COVID world now with the vaccines, is really supporting 
cities in making those difficult, bold, long-term infrastructure changes that we're starting to see. So we obviously saw cities move towards slow streets, especially in the U.S. A lot of them adopted this. This is great. Should definitely retain them, and a lot of cities are, and we're providing them with the support from our advocacy, from our writers, as a company. We're doing whatever we can to give cities support for this types of things. What's been interesting is obviously you've seen places like London and Paris and Berlin actually put in new cycle lanes. They've really taken this opportunity to make significant infrastructure changes. Our policy research team, they looked at our data for pre-COVID areas that didn't have bike lanes, that had new bike lanes or pre-existing, and then in June. So it's February and June of last year. And they found that overall riders traveled 68% farther on line vehicles in June than they did before. So this idea around if you build it, they they will ride is, is really important to this. So we're looking at really supporting cities with, with significant infrastructure changes they need to really move people away from cars and achieve that mode shift they're looking for. I definitely want to touch on some of that more like post-COVID world stuff that I think... Yeah. It seemed like the whole sector was focused on pre-COVID about how we can just help make cities more accessible, easier places to get around. But I'd love to get an idea. And I know I've seen and you guys have put out some of the numbers on like what the recovery looks like and what the change in ridership and usages look like. Can you maybe zoom in just a little bit on that? What it's looked like in March? What are you seeing now? And then a little bit with the different markets. And then Maybe just talk a little bit about who on the government side is your team working with? Are you working with mayor's offices? What stakeholders in mm. cities are you working with? Just to give people an idea, because I think I have an idea on who you're working with, but I think it sometimes can be a little bit overly simplified to think you're just working with like maybe the mayor's office. And there's a lot of people involved on in these market decisions. Oh, yeah. We can chat about that for a while. Yeah. <laughs> it does vary. I think to your point about numbers, I, I can't share specific numbers, but I can tell you that obviously the first hit around February, March, as I mentioned, more in the U.S. and I think a lot of other locations were hit hard. People were scared, period. Stop. They were scared. I think since that point in time, one, we saw variations in how people were using scooters. So people started using them more and more. There was a significant drop and then people started using them for things like just getting out in open air and enjoying themselves, right? Period. And then taking them for short-term trips, go to the pharmacy. People were really hungry for a way to get out, to socially distance, socially distance, to travel in an isolated way by themselves without having to jump in a car. They wanted fresh air. They wanted to experience this city. They wanted to go around, maybe see things, but not interact with them in a way that would expose them. So we saw certainly more people taking those those rides around just for joy, enjoyment. We also saw people riding more in neighborhoods, as you might imagine, right? So people aren't there aren't as many people in the necessarily the downtown area because they're not working. Now we're starting to deploy and see people ride a little farther out in and around their neighborhoods, which is an exciting thing, as well as they're riding longer. People are taking e-bikes, which already people feel more comfortable traveling a longer distance on e-bikes. They do scooters. Now taking them, they're making multiple trips. They're going to the park and then they're going, they're taking that same bike to a, again, to a, a local business to pick up 
local small business to pick up food. And then they're maybe they're dropping it off at a you know friend's house and then they're coming back. We're seeing a lot of those trips that serve multi-use purposes. And so that's been the very exciting thing. We did see rides. Certainly we've seen them increase over time. I think, again, I think shutdowns, this, these new COVID numbers obviously impact people simply getting out of their house at all and quarantining. But I think people are desperate to have, again, they continue and, and the numbers show, continue to have an interest in safe, socially distant way to get, get around our cities. To answer your second question about who we work with, yeah, it's a widespread list of stakeholders. So mm -hmm. in my world, it's coming from a city government background. If you would have asked me how, how this industry would be regulated, I, I wouldn't have conceived or how we would operate. I wouldn't have conceived that we would reach operating agreements with each city we entered. And we're at over 130 cities. We literally have op operating agreements in most of those cities now. They're either through RFPs, through tenders, in some cases, they're MOUs. Our first MOU, one, one of our first MOUs was in South Bend with Mayor Pete. Wow. I'd love to yeah, talk a little bit, Mayor Pete, and what I know you have some thoughts. I saw your, some tweets on what it means for a mayor to do that. So definitely want to talk to Mayor Pete. Yeah. He actually said, my, my colleague said he said something around along the lines of, gosh darn, <laughs> when, the, when it was unlocked and it made that do-to-do sound and everything was so novel and new. It was impressive. But to that end, we obviously worked with mayor's offices and council, of course. The transportation staff, city staff is obviously yeah. extraordinarily critical. In some cases, they have transportation subcommittees, mobility subcommittees. Those are members of the community that participate, that, that volunteer their time to help drive visions, the, the vision of the city towards maybe non-active transportation, non-personal uh, car use alternatives. We've certainly engaged them. And then if we're doing it right, we're engaging the community. Before we come into a city, certainly, when we're in a certain in a city, we have local workforce. We have a local warehouse. We're deeply ingrained in the community, and we are reaching out to the local community organizations. It could be persons with disability, advocates, advocacy groups, which you do are, are doing more and more these days. It could be workforce. Some workforce programs are hiring people that are traditionally have hard-to-hire backgrounds. So it's really diverse set of people that we're reaching out to and, and driving support to these programs. I love that because I think anything transportation-wise, it has to deal with a pretty wide set of stakeholders. I just feel like a lot of times when I see like the coverage about the space and especially on the policy side, I think it's super easy to forget just how complicated, especially at the local level, things can get with how many different people, groups, and stakeholders there are. I think the complexity of government and tech policy at the federal government is pretty easy for people to accept and understand at this point. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of complexity and nuance at the local level. And I think you just spoke to some pieces of it that are often missed and something that I love calling attention to in urban tech when I can. Yeah. And I would say I, what's been interesting too, as part of this process is in many cases, cities are pushing us. And San Jose always comes to mind in this regard is early on, they said, we would like you to have sidewalk detection technology. We all looked around and, and we're asking ourselves, geez, how are we going to do this? How are we going to uh, develop 
tech that would um, detect when somebody's riding on a sidewalk and work to prevent that. It makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you at that point in time how difficult that would be. We became then the first company to launch with the city of San Jose on that innovation, on that tech. And that was a city that really pushed us there. Uh, A number of cities pushed us through requirements and RFPs and regulations around those things. And because it is such a competitive, still a very competitive landscape, we're constantly quickly innovating because we are engaged in those competitive processes. And there's so much on the line in many of these markets. Sure. And that's something that I love, particularly at micromobility, the piece on how government through the RFP process, through different policy mechanisms and tools are pushing operators to consider innovations that are going to make the products that much better. Things like sidewalk detection. I think Washington Post had a story a few weeks or last month about artificial intelligence being used, just all the safety mechanisms that transportation has needed for a while and it seems like you're finally coming to fruition i'd love so obviously and i don't love to spend too much time on backgrounds on this i'd like to focus more on the stories but i think your background is super interesting because you started on the gov side and kind of came to this tech side of things so what's it like so you worked with the city of fresno and did the local side of things you did you also spend time in dc before coming to lime i did yeah i worked for my congressman from Fresno, who was Congressman Calduli, a longtime congressman, now left, obviously, the House, but he was uh, a leader in the House, particularly around ag and trade. And then I moved over to work for Congressman Brian Baird, and that's really where I got involved in transportation infrastructure. So I staffed his subcommittee in that committee. I also worked on a science committee, and it was, it was a tremendous time in, in the House. I have spent four or five years there, better understanding the landscape, federal programs, how appropriations are, are dealt with, which actually we had a different appropriations process uh, still yeah. where they were granting money to <laughs> specific projects uh, it, with, with, for each district. Anyway, and so anyway, yeah, spent some time on the federal side, and then I, I came home to California to go work for the mayor and this governor's partnership that was a regional partnership to really bring resources and hopefully help make an impact as as people tend to want to do in my hometown. Because frankly, as beautiful and as wonderful as Fresno is, and I couldn't be a stronger advocate for it, it has some of the most intense challenges around economic. It has one of the highest concentrations of poverty in the country. I don't think people realize that. And two, the air quality, it is also one of the the worst air quality, has one of the worst air quality challenges in the country because of its topography and the way it's positioned. And then obviously the particulate around ag and then also the vehicles that go along the trade corridors there. It really did, it really did hammer home the importance of one we often looked at, how do we connect regions in California? You have Northern California region with the tech boom that was people were extraordinarily wealthy. There's a lot of money. People are making investments there. Foundations are making investments there. And here we are in the Central Valley. We have people that are, are struggling just to get by and food and shelter. And we're not really getting a lot of attention. How do we get resources to the valley where we need them? Same in Southern Cali. There's a lot of welfare and, and our economy in the Central Valley struggling. So that's when, you know, these big thoughtful projects like high-speed rail began to become a reality. 
which is my boss, who was fairly conservative at the time, was one of the only voices from a conservative aspect, conservative side, to come out in support of it and said, yeah, this is a no-brainer. We need a deeper connection. We need a faster connection to these other wealthy regions of the state. We need people in Fresno to be able to work in other parts of the state and those people to work in Fresno. We need them to invest in our communities, build houses, create new startups here, and really bring innovation back and forth and do something about the terrible pollution that vehicles are causing in our communities, which, by the way, obviously impact our communities of color worse than other demographics within the city. It's huge. I think you have a very interesting background and why I kind of wanted to go in that direction a little bit was because I think a lot of people who are working in this space, really on the micromobility and transportation side, and a lot of my favorite people talk to have kind of your background and come from the way that you come and are very invested in these issues, not only professionally, but personally in a way. And I think the California kind of context and history and not for, since obviously not everyone who reads urban tech is as interested in California, but I think it's an example of one local policy, regional policy issue that certainly has led to a lot of people working on these issues who are now working at the federal government at the federal level. So I know you've mentioned it a little bit, people who are just becoming Secretary of Transportation or being nominated for it and likely to be confirmed by the Senate after these election results. I'm curious, seeing a mayor who, for all intents and purposes, seems to be one of the most innovative policy thinkers, most open arms to technology. What were your reactions seeing that he was the pick for transportation, just thinking about someone who's, you're passionate about technology, transportation, local government? Oh, I love it. I love that a mayor would be the the Secretary of Transportation. I loved Ray LaHood. I think having a mayor in this role is so critically important. Having Mayor Pete in this role, having been very supportive of micromobility from the early days, he has a lot as he said, to get under his belt now before he starts his job. But I think he's a very receptive person. He has the city urban background. I, I remember what it was like during the Obama administration. And they had this such such a deep urban agenda. And when I say urban, I'm talking about places like Fresno. I'm not just yeah. talking about Chicago or New York. I'm saying they Great reached point. out to, yeah, to other cities, especially those that were struggling and said, okay, what if we poured... What if we put together the brightest minds from our agencies, from EPA, from HUD, from DOT, and really concentrated them on cities like Fresno and Detroit and other? What could we make? Could we move the needle here? Could we make some significant impact in this if we then use those tools, those people then to bring also private sector to the table and foundation? And let me tell you, that has spun off into what is now what I considered a a much stronger foundation and giving uh, program to places like the Valley and the Central Valley Foundation that exists there that I think might otherwise be. And certainly a lot of investment in our transportation sector there and some of the transportation projects in the Valley. I think do it, you know, having those partnerships with cities would be another wonderful thing to see happen in the Biden administration with Pete Buttigieg. I think there are things around micro mobility that would be tremendously helpful we just, we need to get people out of cars for so many reasons. I don't need to tell you air quality, emissions, environmental, climate, but it's also safety, right? I think what has been interesting during this COVID period is the reality, having come across studies out of NYU, which suggested that 
even though there were significantly less cars on the road, we actually saw deaths and collisions increase on a percentage basis, right? It's based on the number of cars actually on the road, the collisions based on that percentage, collisions and deaths increase. That's, so it, it's not a matter of the number of cars being on the road, creating a, an unsafe environment. It's also around the infrastructure needs to change to accommodate other modes. It needs to change to accommodate pedestrians. It needs to change to not just accommodate, but prioritize other modes like bikes and scooters so that people feel safe to get around in other ways. And so providing cities with those, that infrastructure, those infrastructure funds, really helping public transit come back through additional funding they need to bridge the gap between the budget deficits they're seeing now and people beginning to commute again and re-envision their taking public transit again. And then I think to beginning to incentivize people through like commuter benefits, subsidies is really focusing on, again, a non-car form of transportation, maybe even alternatives to transit, which is how do we get people using bikes and scooters and things that are no emitting vehicles to find a better way around. I think largely, if people conceive of this all the time, but it's our cars are very expensive and they're very expensive for certainly low-income families that can, sometimes they're, usually they're buying older cars that need a lot of upkeep. They can't afford their one, one incident away from losing all their savings they do have. And those sit idle 90% of the time really right-sizing the vehicles that we use on an, everyday, on an everyday level is going to be a really important part of not just our economy, but to the way we return from an environmental and climate standpoint to really work to make a dent is we really need to do right-size. We really need to right-size the vehicles that we choose in our everyday. No, for sure. And I think something that's Honestly, so many of those points are why I am particularly have an affection for the micromobility world. I think the ethos of the space and most people in the space and how it's approached from people like you is how can we really solve these urban problems for real people? And I think certainly there was a lot of criticism from micromobility when it first started and rolling out VC money and got some of that. I don't really want to go too much into that because I think it's been covered before. But I do think people like you and a lot of my friends who I know who are in the space are truly trying to figure out how we can get people moving around cities in better ways, whether that's through using scooters or also helping spur innovation and infrastructure projects, connective transportation just across cities. I, I live in LA. I live in downtown LA and I don't have a car. So I'm personally super yeah. passionate about those areas and any initiatives that are doing that. For me, I have a scooter that I use, but also when I don't bring it with me, I use Lime or Bird as one way, but I use subways and or i guess the metro is what we call it in la and buses and stuff and i think i'm lucky where i live that's something i can do but it's not like that in most places i'm from texas i grew up in houston you have to have a car to get to work there you or before covid and you can't be remote so i'm curious any advice i think a lot of the companies and a lot of people who read urban tech are people who are super intentional about wanting to help solve urban problems and i guess what lessons or advice for people thinking about these issues would you maybe pass on and maybe i don't know it's just how people can be thoughtful how people who are working on city and tech issues can approach it in the right manner 
Yeah, I think I I spoke a little bit about high speed rail earlier. I think there we're past a point of we have a tendency and we should do some of these things, but we have a tendency to move incrementally and address low hanging fruit. Of course, we should always do that, but we can't get in our own way of not looking at big picture, inexpensive and expensive options, thinking very large, because let's be honest, the climate crisis is real and we're just not paying enough attention to it. It doesn't feel urgent to many people, and yet it needs a sense of urgency. And so I love this idea about everything on the table. I love, I'm obviously, based on my background, big and in micromobility, a big proponent of bringing everyone to the table key stakeholders to the table and really to have differing positions and views. And, and that includes the private sector, as well as nonprofits and foundations and cities who come to the table and start to, you know, brainstorm and re-envision what, what changes, what the issues are, what the, what the primary problems are, and then what can each stakeholder or collective group of stakeholders bring to the table to change those things. And that's not a silver bullet. I don't think if there's no really sil- a silver bullet answer to this, it's always difficult. I think it starts from a, a point of understanding, though. Like in Fresno, if you don't understand the, the, the scale of the environmental challenges we're facing or the economic challenges that, that we're facing and the root causes of that, you can't begin to make, you can't begin to change the community if you have a really in-depth understanding of, of the challenges then you can begin to make an impact. But I think that's where it starts. I know that's a, maybe a, a roundabout answer. Again, it's not yeah. highly attractive in that it's not a silver bullet, but. Yeah, I think something from working around this space before on the comm side, before I, I started Urban Tech and now just getting talked to people, I think that there are no silver bullets for any of this stuff. This stuff's super complex. It's always more of an issue of trade-offs and things like that, rather than just picking the best answer. You're choosing what trade-offs you can handle. So I love that. I just two quick questions. I don't want to take up two more of your time. I'm curious, looking back at the conversation, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't, anything that just came to mind? Yeah, I. you asked me initially what we're focused on, and I spoke a lot about COVID and, and where we're hoping to go now in this post-COVID world or after COVID. I don't know if there's a post-COVID world, but as after people start getting vaccines and cities start to reopen is beyond the policy realm, it's too about what Lime is focused on is really multimodality now. We had that acquisition of Jump. We have very excellent e-bikes in you know over 20 markets now alongside our scooters. We've seen the changes, the shift in ridership that's occurring because we have those modes on a Lime platform that also has uniquely, exclusively Uber integration and Google Maps. So as I think about it, you have a city like Seattle, which is an example, a good example of a city where we had bikes. We actually had the first generation Lime e-bike, which was great at the time, but then come, you have the jump bikes and it's very clear the jump bikes are an excellent alternative to an original Lime bike. And now we have, so we have now the, the jump bikes in market and now we have scooters, right? So we introduce scooters and how does it change that pattern? We find that now 30% of people are multimodal users in Seattle. That means that those bike riders, those people that were riding bikes initially, have now found an interest in scooters. And maybe people that were riding scooters in other cities, because we serve them globally, 
in Seattle that were riding scooters in other cities are now trying e-bikes because it's simply at their doorstep. It's where they are. And, and those are serving multiple trip pur- purposes under five miles. So we look at what the future of Lyme is. It really is a platform for, we want to be the platform for all rides under five miles, which is essentially to convert 50% of all car, car trips to this sort of alternative way of getting around so that we can really make a dent in, in these climate challenges we have and, and give people options to really get around their communities in a way that makes them feel alive. And as our president our president says, it, in a joyful way, it feels like a magic carpet ride. You often do feel that way when you're in a scooter. I don't know, John, if you feel that way when you're in downtown LA. I do. But... <laughs> I, do. I, I love, you know, I, I think there's a lot of shade thrown at people who like riding scooters and they do sometimes look a little ridiculous sometimes, but I love it. It's one of my <laughs> favorite things to do to get around and just get out and have fun. So no shame from me on it. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so the things where we can drive people and nudge people to use, like on Uber's platform, you can find line bikes and Uber. So that's essentially nudging people to take an, a bike or scooter where they would otherwise take a you know ride-hailing trip that would be maybe a $10 trip can now be taken for $3, $4, and it actually gets you faster. It gets you there faster than a ride-hailing trip. And two, in Google Maps, you may, that's by far the largest, most widely used navigation app across around mm-hmm. the world. You start in it, you line bike, you line scooter, and again, you look and find out that you can get there faster than you can driving. It's a game changer. Yeah, last thought-ish. Last question, where can people follow you where you will keep up with your work? Yeah. If, if by work, you mean my work at home, then you can come over and um, <laughs> check out what it's like to be with a five-month-old and four-year-old. <laughs> my work at home, I feel like I do a lot of work with them. But no, that my, my actual policy work, you can find uh, my work on our line blog. We are doing webinars from time to time and hosting those. Yeah. If anyone wants to share some big thoughts and collaboration, we're very open to it and you can hunt me down and, and would love to have those conversations. Awesome. I'll be sure to include links to your social profile and the blog and stuff and show notes. Thank you so much, Katie, for the time. This is awesome. And Thank you, we'll chat again soon. Appreciate it. I told you Katie was awesome and that she was going to drop a lot of knowledge. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. One final ask before I go, please continue to share the Urban Tech newsletter and podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. Anyone who could benefit from learning about how tech is changing our cities more and more every day. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.